welcome to Writers Talking, the podcast where we take writers and readers behind the scenes, sharing the stories within the stories. No scripts, no filters, and no holds barred as we talk about what really happens for writers as they write, edit, publish, and promote their work. Hi, I'm Anjanette Fennell, agent, editor, and writerly mentor who's worked with hundreds of writers to break through their creative challenges to uncover the stories they feel compelled to share. Now, let's get talking. If you love reading fictionalized history, I think you are going to love today's conversation. I had such a blast talking with author and historian, indigenous woman, who's absolutely incredible to chat to, Angie Alita Newell. Her new book, All I See is Violence, is coming out in January 2024 with Greenleaf Book Group. She's talking about real life historical events but through the lens of all the destruction or the challenges that colonialism caused, including centering around the 1876 Battle of Little Bighorn. She is absolutely fascinating to talk to. I think you're going to love this. Please enjoy today's episode. Angie Alita Newell belongs to the Lidley IQ First Nation from the Decho, the place where two rivers meet. A trained historian, she blends a tradition of oral stories with academic history and holds university degrees in English literature, creative writing, and First Nations history with an emphasis on colonialism. Angie is a heavily tattooed global wanderer, a mother to daughters, and a connoisseur of coffee. She has a profound appreciation for humanity and what we as a people can instill in this awe-inspiring world. Connect with Angie Alita Newell at AngieAlitaNewell.com. Newell is also the co-host of a recently launched podcast, Apparently Transparent, along with co-host and former professional skateboarder Ross McLeister. Exploring a variety of topics featuring guests and conversation, the podcast aims to rethink the human mind and the universe that controls it. This world is large and talk can be small. Apparently Transparent tries to make it big. I was really struck because you are this very interesting writer in terms of where people market you, right? Your background is as a historian, but you also have experience and education in creative writing. And so you've written this book that is beautifully accessible in terms of being fiction, but also I found it quite literary. How did you decide I work maybe, do you work in academia? during the day or no no I um became unintentionally pregnant when I was pursuing a PhD so I dropped out of university and then when you have infants as you know you have all the time <laughs> right like, yeah. like you you have no time and you have lots of time like yes it is a weird dichotomy yeah for sure and because I am academically inclined like I just like this story just it came from an elder at a Musqueam feast he just one time turned to me and he said did you know that there were women warriors? And I had never really contemplated that, like that I, I hadn't found that in my historical training as a research, my academic research. And so I started looking into it 
And he was 100% right. Like when you start going into Apache, Kamachi, you know, CU Cheyenne, like, yeah, there's definitely a strong female presence on the battlefield that have sort of been eradicated from history. And so I am trained as a historian. And I, uh, I wanted to, I wanted to give back to, you know, thinking of my children, you know, I wanted to give them the history that I know in a sort of more engaging manner. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, if, if you're a historian, you read these nonfiction, you know, you go through these documents and they can be pretty dry. Like I've fallen asleep reading them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Them. I'm so glad, so glad you said that. But I mean, it, it naturally leads somewhere else that I hope we'll talk about, but you're, you're absolutely right. Trying to present history. I think there are two parts to it, right? So part of it is what you'd already brought up history not being shared with the reality, right? So there are whole swathes of history not being shared, whether it's big stuff or even small stuff, like women are often written out or just written into one part of the story, but also that it's written in a way that's not like there is a a section who like the dry stuff, I guess, but I, I fall asleep. (laughs) So that's amazing. I love it, but it's boring. Like I want the history and I will persevere, but I am falling asleep while I'm reading it. For sure. You're through like General Burke's diary. You're just like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) like give me something. And I mean, that's part of being a historian though, right? It's like being a detective. Mm. Like you're you're looking for something you have to go through like 40 books to find it or 40, you know, you have to go down to the archives and you're going through these massive, massive rolling shelves and you're just, you know, you could spend hours. Well, I personally could spend hours. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe fall asleep somewhere in the middle that we yeah. <laughs> keep going but I mean, history, history is so important and we're sort of seeing like a like i'm i'm first nation so i'm native i think i think the term in the united states they prefer is american indian i'm originally from the northwest territories from fort simpson i belong to the lily q nation and like in particularly like in first nations history like there's not much academic like accessibility like Mm -hmm. and what what sort of has been portrayed you know is very one-sided yeah so it was sort of like how do we how do we look at this from a sort of you know like how do we look at from their perspective not just from you know even modern historians that are writing Native American history like it's pretty uh what's the word I'm looking for like it's it's you know it's got to be one way everyone's so worried about offending people too that we don't really get into these sort of big sticky issues which which are still affecting us today so we have to sort of go backwards we have to look at this from a place of you know compassion and a universal oneness and to see in order to see what's going on now be how can we actually fix this because nothing's getting fixed yeah well especially like to that that very first point it's it's the unknown that's really interesting to me too so we've got a lot of let's just be real white dudes who wrote stuff and some were probably more entertaining writers than others, right? It's like today, there's every type of writer and that's totally fine. We need that. But how did, how do you investigate when, of course, there's, and I always think of things like microfilm and microfiche. And like you said, going down and exploring these archives, but you don't have that necessarily with First Nations people. And if you've got these different tribes that you're talking about too, within different locations, how do you, it's not necessarily about correction, although that is part of it, but even nuance, how do you get these stories from people who were in these different communities, especially because they've been displaced. So 
right? Oh, and so I'm assuming back then too, they're like, oh, you're, you're both Indian. So you go over there, we'll put you on a reservation without necessarily understanding the relationships, these, these people who were near each other, but had different cultures within each tribe. Like how that's mind blowing. How do you do it? Sure. So I started piecing together, started like, like boots on the ground. I started talking to elders and piecing together oral stories that correlated to my academic, you know, sort of training, which has a more Eurocentric point of view because, you know, well, well, like, you know, there's been a massive genocide committed against us. So there isn't that many of us to begin with. And there's not that many of us become historians. (laughs) Yeah. Right, that limits the field right there. So you kind of, I kind of start piecing it all together. And, you know, it was real interesting, because like, you uncover one thing, you're like, okay, there's female warriors, and you uncover another thing, like, there's no concept of race, like, this is sort of something that comes out at the late 19th century. So we have, you know, real interracial mixing going on in these nations as well. And so we're seeing, in particular, I piece this together through Custer's memoirs, like he had a real big problem that called them squawmen so white men that would marry into these tribes and we're matrilineal, so we trace things through you know the women's side so if i were to get married then my husband would take my name and come live in my community historically so these white men essentially would become indians and then when they started negotiating these treaties they were present and they were like no do not sign that like the american government's trying to screw you out of your land like like do not do this and so they call them squawmen so now we have you know there's, you know, a real history of like interracial mixing, but because, you know, there's no concept of race and the Indians consider these white men who've married into the community now, whatever nation that is, right? So now yes. you're senior. So we, we're now we're, now we're, you know, we're challenging cultural constructs as well. Wow. So to me, that was really fascinating, like the politics of identity, as well as, you know, the politics of gender, because they viewed women differently than what the sort of, you know, the colonial Anglo view of women was. Yeah. Right. Because that that was a real patriarchal society where women were really downtrodden, and that wasn't what was going on in Indian country. But then you had these white settlers who are marrying into these communities are totally cool with that. So that's you know, is that was that the general view of women, or is that just what's getting written about historically? So you start getting into like you said, nuances. It's not necessarily a correction. It's just you know well, why, why is this being omitted? So now we're getting into like perspectives and, you know, as a historian, that was really exciting. <laughs> now I'm excited. Yeah, well, I can see now for anyone, but before you've read the book, one of the things just from a process perspective, now, is this your first novel? Is that this is my right? first novel that's getting published? This okay. So not, so you have practice. Okay. Uh, writers hear this. It's the first one getting published, not the first one written. This is a common story. But one thing that amazed me, number one, were the three distinct points of view. And when I say distinct, sometimes when I read read books, you know, there is somewhat of an overlap. It's not necessarily very clear uh, who is, is talking at any time because there are just too many similarities. You've got three very different perspectives and we're, we're jumping timelines as well. Was that a conscious decision? I want to write a creative book, like you'd said, something that's accessible and interesting to future generations who may not be so 
gaga for history like I am, but we want to pass it on. Or was it something that just developed? How did you come to that place where you took on something that's absolutely challenging from a writing perspective? I've never shied away from challenge. <laughs> <laughs> but was it, did it come up? Did it feel like no, the I, story was doing it or you thought, you know what, to tell sure. it correctly, I need to, or, or as expansively as I want, I need to do it this way. A hundred percent. So I wanted to do it as expansively as I wanted. And I want to illustrate that those problems are still ongoing, Hmm. that we're not, you know, we're not just, this wasn't just settled and done with in the 19th century. Even when you start getting into different treaties and you start researching treaties in North America, not a single treaty has been honored between the U.S. government and the American Indians. Like that's astounding. When I started getting into it, I thought maybe 50%, you know, maybe 50%, but every single treaty has been broken. So you start looking at this and you're like, well, what actually, like, what is the reservation? And the more, you know, I've grown up around reservations, obviously being indigenous, it's a prison camp. And so you start looking at this, you start looking at what's going on. Like I drove through the Navajo nation last year and like it's, it's poverty ridden. And so you're like, well, what the heck is going on here? Like, like, so how do I, as a historian, illustrate this through a way that's, you know, accessible and compassionate? And I don't think any race is to blame. Like, that's a real weird thing that people are getting into right now. Like, it's not, it's not a racial thing. Like, this is, this is a government thing. <laughs> it's not like that. And so that's where we lead back to the squaw man. If we're saying yeah. like every, you know, white person's racist, then what the heck are these guys? Like, like crazy yes. horses clearly half white. Like, you know, you have another, you have Kwana, the big Kamachi chief who's, you know, you know, like outright half white, like his mother, you know, was stolen as a child and taken into the Kamachis and she had the opportunity to leave. And she's like, no, I married the chief. Like I'm staying here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm good. Like, thank you. But no, thank you. Like we're good. (laughs) So, you know, you have these stories that have sort of like, so, you know, it's real, it's real chaotic. And so Mm. I wanted to try to illustrate that and hopefully we can come to a place of unity we're not all mad at each other we can just kind of look at it objectively and be like well how like again when google goes back to where i was saying before how do we make this better and we can't make it better unless we understand the history you know the the stories of the past the history yeah yeah wow did you have when you were setting it out so this will be a real process question did you outline so were you plotting for this or were you did you, I can't imagine anyone who loves the research totally pantsing it, <laughs> but was it, was there like a light thing or did you start from an outline? How did you approach this? Because again, it's, it's so much, but you're having to cherry pick the, the, the moments that you're sharing in these scenes that best illustrate what you're looking for people to know about what was actually happening as opposed to what we all assume happened based on the big stories of the day? I think that comes from training as a historian. So I wrote it essentially like a nonfiction essay first. So I, you know, I hand wrote everything and that took about a year to do the academic research and the archival research. And then I pieced it together to make it like historically accurate. And then before I even queried it, I had another historian go through it to verify all my facts. So we get into actual, you know, what you're, yeah. you're going to learn from it. You know, I was really inspired by uh, like the History Channel. Okay. 
flex some stuff on there. You're like, oh, this is really interesting. Like, yeah. how can I make history that interesting? So, you know, here I was, I'm going down the road, going to become a historian. I, I, I have degrees in creative writing and English literature as well. And I was trained in England, you know, and I, it, people keep on asking me if I've ever experienced like racism in an academic institution and never. <laughs> and I went to school where there was like no other indigenous people. And like, I never was like, you know, like I've, I haven't had these, like, I've experienced racism in terms from, like, the RCMP in Canada and the government. Like, like, we get in the whole Pandora's box there. But from, like, the average person, never. And, like, my ex-husband, his family is originally from Cleveland, Ohio. And they're they're super white American. And my kids are half white. And, like, same thing. Like, I've never. So I was like, well, you know, they're saying, like, all these experiences happened historically. But it doesn't really seem like that because now we have this age you know, this interracial mixing and yeah. like, why are, why are these half white Indians being portrayed as, you know, all long, dark hair and dark eyes? Like yeah. what is going on? Like how, how can we show that's not was, you know, that these people were full of color and agency and, mm. you know, they, they were in control of what was going on until, you know, the policies became so destructive. Like I was on another podcast and we were discussing how, you know, Sheridan, like it's things that he was saying were, were they were picked up by Adolf Hitler. Like, the, the same, yeah, yeah. The, the idea for a concentration camp comes from a reservation. You know, the oh. Indian problem was the ground work for the final solution. <laughs> like, that so is mind-blowing. Yeah, that's that's just historical truth. Like that's just what was going on. And it's again, it's not the average person. This is like a deep government issue where you have scientists, doctors, academics all proliferating. You know, again, not necessarily mistruth because that's their truth, but they're altering perception. So I was like, how do we? How do we show that's not what like the average person? Because you know, the average people we make up ninety percent. Like we're yeah. they're, they're in. 10% and we're in the 90%. So, you know, again, as a historian, that was real fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and to go through and find like actual, like, you know, ethnographic pictures and, you know, different like little blurbs and stuff from, you know, indigenous elders. And what, what was interesting too, for me with um, the indigenous elders is like, you, you veer into the supernatural really quick with them. Okay. Like, you know, you know, you go like from like, you know, where how they used to like make like like corn grain, how they would make kind of like like a grit sort of thing. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, you got like this fantastic story how this one guy could like bring the rain and like <laughs> yes. call thunder and then we're remote viewing and then there's like a Sasquatch. <laughs> <laughs> and so you're like, well, why isn't why haven't these like sort of surreal elements been included? Included in any of the history and yeah. I started going through the documents even by different like indigenous historians whose work I I studied for this like why why have this has just totally been discluded like that's you know yeah. again like that so I wanted to incorporate those sort of surreal elements from different stories you know I, like I I don't discredit anything like yeah. as I'm totally open-minded as an academic like you know like like totally like you know what the ancient Greek philosophers say like you know the more you learn the less you know <laughs> yes well and I think I mean you said one thing there too that really struck me that we often think about when we talk about memoir where you say it's not that it wasn't the truth. It was just, it was their truth. 
you know, we all have our own experiences. And I think you're right. There's a certain, and I, I don't have another term for it. So I'll just say whitewashing. But really what it is, is taking out the stuff, even from that very early creative perspective where you think people won't understand it. So I'll just leave that part. I don't know if this will be accepted. And that being like the supernatural stuff, right? So if people are thinking, oh, they'll... And and I get the, I guess that immediate feeling too. If you are trying to introduce new, true stories to a, a collection, right? So you're challenging what everyone has accepted as history, but it's just a part of history and you're sharing new stories that were experienced, there may be uh, a little bit of hesitance to include the parts that you think, well, if I include this part, are they going to discount the whole story? But you can't do it because it's like taking out a part of the whole. And what if you took out the heart? You you know, like the story doesn't quite resonate if because you're taking a truth out before it's even laid down. So the the part that I hope that you did when you were even in the middle of creating, editing happens for everyone's work, right? But if you start from a place of creating or sharing story where you're keeping in all the things, later in the editing, you can decide this just, it doesn't quite make enough sense. I'll just take this little piece out. We're keeping in a lot of the supernatural because that was literally their experience. That was their truth. Their truth was, you know, it started with, yeah, mushing up the, the maze or the grits or whatever. And then this and then that and then a Sasquatch, <laughs> you know, rambles by and then, but it was part of it. How do you know which part to take out? How, you know, that was it. That was their truth. A hundred percent. I think if you come from a place of love and compassion, you don't have to censor yourself. Like, cause yeah. you're not you're not saying anything to hurt anybody. You're just, you know, you just, I just listen openly. Like I, I don't have like this crazy, you know, I don't believe in like a lot of what's going on with the the race hate. Like I just, I believe in the universal oneness that my ancestors believed in. Like, obviously that's where like Thanksgiving comes from. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I don't believe in like, you know, tearing down a statue because someone might've done something. Like I, I don't believe in that. Like it's, yeah. and so I think if you come from a place of love, you don't have to have censorship and you can explore these avenues and be, and exactly like, Who's to say that didn't happen? Like when yeah. even I I was researching, so they call them boarding schools in the United States, but in Canada they call them residential schools, which yes. or yes. So I started talking with a lot of different pastors and ministers, like churchmen. Yeah. And it was really interesting because, you know, we would just be going through like normal sort of documents. And, you know, what I was looking for in Canada was, was, was there actually these mass graves? Turns out there was. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is what I was like. I know you said we could open Pandora's box, but if I'm anything, I'm one who's totally going to open that box. I can want to talk about what the difference has been. So Wow. Yeah. Tell me what, what were they sharing? So what would happen with these pastors and ministers? They would all go into like a supernatural experience that they had had. And then they would tell me, don't like write about that or repeat that because then people won't believe this other stuff. So that's exactly what I'm saying. What yeah. Yeah. But they would have, they'd have these crazy stories where they're like, and then a demon left the, you know, the partitioner's body. And you're like, what? <laughs> and again, like I, 
I don't discredit anything. Like I just, yeah. I just sit there and I listen and I think about it. And, you know, I don't have anything to say that didn't happen. And another uh, pastor was telling me that, you know, he was one time in danger and it was like some force like shoved him through the door to prevent him from going outside. Like, you know, so it's not just indigenous people that are having yeah. these real, like, like Christians right. are having them, too, like white Christians. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's just no place to talk about it. So, you know, again, like I'm a challenging sort of person. So I was like, let's explore this. <laughs> let's dive in. Well, I think, but here's the, the thing too. And this is, I think is one thing that your book did so well is when we're, again, we're trying to second guess what people are going to think before they even get it. And I think that maybe your experience as a historian being open to all the things is actually the real benefit, right? I'm not placing judgment. I want you to tell me what your experience was. It's not my job to say this is correct and this isn't because it doesn't align with my beliefs. Their reporting of their experience is owned by them, right? So coming from a place of self-editing, I think is always painful, right? Because we're self-editing because we're thinking about what are other people going to expect. It's safe for me to talk about this over here, maybe with other people who have already proven themselves and they won't sort of distance me from this other group, but I can't talk about it over here because it'll discount everything. I will admit my bias. My bias is there is magic in the world and it's not up to tell uh, up to me to tell other people what magic they did experience or didn't and how it affected them. The truth is if they felt that in the moment, that's truth, right? If he felt pushed through a door and and saved him, that affects the way that he interacts with the world the rest of his life going forward. Oh, definitely. And that's truth. And so the problem is because I didn't edit when I went to go get it published, you know, right away, like some of the more mainstream publishers are like, that's got to go. And I was like, nope, like I was totally uncompromising. And so I think as an artist and a writer, you have to decide, you know, what's, what's your, like, what's your line? Like, what, like, what's, where do you stand as an artist? Like, what's your integrity? Are you just looking to like, are you looking to like, just get your words out there? Like, even if they're only part of your words and leaving out this other stuff. Yeah. And because I, you know, so many of these individuals shared highly personal experiences with me, like I owed it to my ancestors to tell it how they told it. And, you know, whatever judgment people have on that, like, like, maybe that's good. Maybe that's, you know, that's challenging, you know, obviously, it's stirring something inside of them. And maybe that's something worth exploring. Maybe that's the whole purpose of it. Mm. So tell me a little bit uh, about that you wrote things and you just hit on something that I try to tell writers too. It's and work as an agent means that I am off, often the mediary uh, between these sorts of conversations. So I, I cop it a lot and that's okay. I don't mind. You keep going because as the artist, you've said, this is what I believe. There are all sorts of things that need editing. We're talking about <laughs> grammar and, and all that. And that's different as long as it's clean, but What ultimately you're looking for is not just anyone or someone that you think, oh, that's the publisher that feels like the best fit. You want the true best fit. And that's somebody who sees the the value and the purpose and the beauty in what you've written, right? As close to how you've written it as possible. Everyone's going to have some feedback. But so it's about finding that right person to champion. And by person, I mean 
like a publisher in this case. How how long was that process for you? And how hard was it to hold your line of saying, this is what I've written. Here's where I will be open to modifying. And here's where I won't. I, I think like what you were saying, like when you get into like copy editing, sure, there might be like some sentences that are, you know, that that to me was totally fine. And like, I sort of, I was really inspired by World War One poetry and like T.S. Eliot. So kind of wrote it in sort of a fluid, lyrical sort of way. Yes, you really have that in your book. I was, like I said, it's, here's a, a mainstream publishing challenge. When it doesn't fit neatly in a box, I mean, maybe that's a, I don't know, a societal challenge. Uh, when it doesn't fit neatly in a box and we aren't sure, sometimes they're afraid to take a chance. And yours is both accessible and and grounded, especially in the modern day, sort of the contemporary timeline and voice, but also lyrical and straddling that literary. So it would have been hard if somebody just got it. If I just received this as a manuscript I'm reading, their challenge may be I don't know how to neatly put it in a box. Therefore, I will put it in the too hard box. So, <laughs> so it, it was absolutely apparent in the way that you wrote it that you took that sort of inspiration. And that was part of what I loved because it was very different from what you see a lot of those dry texts as well, whether it's strict nonfiction or even a more creative telling of history. I think like it, it comes back to like, we're in a strange time where like, no one's really, no one's really like challenging art. Like no one's really, you know, just like get out of like all the political racial yeah. nonsense. Like no one's like, you're not seeing like really the envelope getting pushed with any kind of art. Like it's almost like people are afraid to. Mm. And I, I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew like I wanted, I wanted it to stay like that. I knew at the end of it, when I finished completing this novel, like I said, it's not my first novel, but I was like, oh, this is a good one. And I shared yeah. it with, you know, Leslie Milner, who's a writer for The Simpsons. And he's like, oh, that's a good one. I was like, yeah, that is a good one. <laughs> and then uh, Dr. Robert Mallet was the historian that I had read through it. And he's like, no, this is like pretty amazing. And then when I started querying it, like everyone I queried wrote back to me, which is pretty extraordinary. Yes. Because you don't normally, is, normally, I think when I've been talking to other writers, a lot of people get like form letters or yeah. no reply. Yeah, just ghosted. <laughs> just like, did it get lost? And then, yeah. But, but yeah, people said exactly what you said. Like, we love this, but we don't know what to do with this. And then some people flat out said that they wouldn't be allowed to publish it. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, what do you mean you're not allowed to publish it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, isn't that kind of part of yeah isn't that part of what you're talking about in the book itself though right the problem not being a racial one but the problem being a government and as i see it a power one we have a lot of these struggles throughout history as well where from the outside you say those people are actually very similar and hold similar beliefs. There might be one or two differences, but it's actually the government and the people in power who are creating and exacerbating a divide. And when people are told about this divide, that's what they concentrate on rather than the fact that actually, like you've said, there's this universal oneness. We're actually really similar, but it's that other thing. So here are a modern day ramifications or ripples of that thing saying, we're just going to toe the line. We're not allowed to put it out there. Wait a minute. What do you mean allowed? I get it. That weird, that word is sort of very discordant to me because I don't, I'm a little contrarian. I don't know if you picked that up, but I, often, like, I mean, 
but I like the fact that I can see into the reason that that traditional publishing does some of its things and it's their choice. In publishing, that's a business and they can do it. But the second you use a word like allowed, that sets off alarm bells for me. I set off alarm bells for me too. And it made me stand even firmer on my ground. I wasn't changing, like my story was purposeful. I wasn't changing anything in there. Yeah. <laughs> like, to me, that made me dig my, you know, my boots in a little bit yeah. harder. And then I started looking at independent publishers. So yeah. I was like, well, obviously these big guys, like they got, and you know, it's really, really challenging. I don't, I'm sure it's always been like this in art. You know, you hear of like yeah. the impressionists, it, you know, going on in the 19th century, they got kicked out of the salon because they like dared challenge how <laughs> yes. you know, a painting was meant to be portrayed. So I think as an artist, like this is just, you know, you have to be pretty courageous and you have to decide, okay, like, like we're going in a different direction. Let's go. And, you know, I I think like those people struggle to get through, right? Like you, like, it's hard to stand your ground when someone's like, change X, Y, and Z will do it, you know, and you get an advance, you'd be like, well, (laughs) okay. Yeah, yeah, yes. (laughs) Look, but so how did you do it? Like, what were you using to help support yourself through that time? Or was it just a given like you, you... (laughs) I, I had a shaman. I actually had a legit like female shaman that I would go and talk to and we would just okay. sort of, you know, we would do like a meditation and we'd be like, no, like we gotta, we gotta keep going. Like, yes. So like, uh, you know, for, I think it could be any sort of like spiritual, like to me, this was like something, something spiritual that I was sharing. Like this just mm-hmm. wasn't, you know, we weren't writing just like 50 shades of gray. Like we were, yeah. you know, we're going into the esoteric, you know, with, with like historical pertinence. So I, I just kept looking and it ended up taking way longer. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Instead of, you know, six months you end up and, and that's the other thing. So you would get close and then they would want, you know, you would get a manuscript request and then you get given a thing like, Oh, don't send this out to anyone. And we want to keep it for 12 oh, weeks. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah so there are things like to really throw their weight around i learned like, yeah <laughs> look and i can't say it's sort of like you were saying even about some some things in history i can't say it's wrong i just don't agree with certain ways just because it's always been done doesn't mean we should continue to do in traditional publishing it can take a long time and it's funny it's all down to at this point it's almost anecdotal evidence because so few people actually write it or you have to go like you would have to be a researcher i could be a researcher on people's path to publication how long it took how many rejections so the writer as you is the creative and the artist sitting there thinking oh this is taking forever and that may not be wrong but that's partially perception somebody else may have taken you know decades to get the one thing and they have to do other things in the meantime and or they change things one uh story that comes to mind is just a Catherine Stockett uh, experience with the help and how long and how many years and how many submissions and like you said getting close to something and then uh ultimately it falls through or we're really interested and then everything goes quiet and then they say oh you know the market isn't you know accepting this i think there are what is it close to 8 billion people in the world now there is a market 
for virtually everything written. <laughs> and so the the closest to true that I can get for what you said you got back was, we love it, but we don't know what to do with it. Thank you for being honest, because that's the truth. The truth <laughs> is not that it doesn't have a readership or that it can't be sold, or that it can't be even commercially successful. What is braiding sweetgrass? I mean, that book is an anomaly because it's like nonfiction. Nobody thought it was, and it's it's here in Australia, which is not an Australian story. That is wild to me. So there are readers. It's about finding ways and a publisher, a part partner publisher who will think outside the box maybe and think where are the readers of this story and how do we access them? And so some of the big ones, you think they automatically have lots of access to readers, but they don't know how. So they're not necessarily the best. So don't, don't do it. And you know what was interesting too, as I've like kind of, as I, my book's now coming out and I've gone on these different podcasts, I've spoken, like I have a publicist and, uh, you know, you talk with different people in marketing. What happens at those big publishers is that the writer doesn't actually get final say in the edit or the cover. No, no. huge like because I I like wrote off everything like we you know me and Neil worked really closely on the cover I told him I wanted you know a wanted poster that looked like it was made by Black Flag the punk band and Jack Sparrow the pirate (laughs) you know so he kind of came up with that like you know like to me that was like I'm so glad that I persevered and kept going till you found the right fit and then you have this extraordinary experience of creation right it's creators you're not just you know kind of and through trying to like, I don't know what, become a famous writer. Like, like, no, this is like, this is creatorship. This is pure art. Yeah. Well, also it's, it's your legacy. So it's not to say that anybody who goes down a particular path, that's the wrong path. There are so many paths in publication. And sometimes something that can feel like a right fit maybe ends up disappointing you because, you know, the, they sold it with all the bells and whistles, but that's not what the experience was like. I always think that's just part of that learning. And then that gives you something where you think next time I want to do this, or this is a real contracty thing, but like reversion of rights. If it didn't turn out the way you want before you sign that contract, make sure you've got your airtight on the contract <laughs> termination. Oh, that would be awful, wouldn't it? <laughs> you well, no, but the, the, I mean, I've seen it at every stage for people where they were delivering, you know, so you talk about the advance and oftentimes advances are, are metered out. You know, whether they're big or small, they're metered out. And I had an author who uh, was at the part where it was like on delivery of manuscript and delivered the manuscript after the editing. And then they were like, yeah, we're no longer doing that genre, like this age range of books. So that's it. That book, I don't know where it is. Maybe maybe it'll be self-published. Uh, but for writers, knowing where those places are, where they can get back the rights to this thing they created. Obviously, I'm a massive champion for writers. So I always want the artists to get the most out of it. And to have those places where, okay, we can, we can change the story of this book's publishing path. But it sounds like you found, like you said, persevered and found that right fit where it felt like for you, you want to be very collaborative. And there are other people who fair play. They're like, no, I just wrote these words and I'm not overly attached to them anymore. Now they're for someone else, you know, go for your life. I'll, I'll promote it but I don't need to be involved. But there is often these like step by step. I'm so glad you had a shaman you could talk to. I think you need that even once you get into promoting and a book launch is not like a one-time thing. 
for, for author success, creative success, it should be cyclical, like a Paolo Coelho. I mean, I see that guy is still promoting the alchemist, right? If you're still promoting a book once it's reached this watershed and known by that many people, that's the way to go. You keep talking about it so that new people who haven't seen it before, because there are, there are those people who exist, they can see it and they can now get the experience that you spent all of that time and effort and energy in weaving together this magical story, multiple points of view, different timelines, historical fact, but delivered in a way that makes people not fall asleep. You know, that's what <laughs> should be. That was my ultimate goal. Yeah, the I, ultimate I think, goal, engaging. Yeah, I think because I'm Indigenous, like oral storytelling is such, you know, an integral part of our culture. Like to me, that made me less, you know, made me pretty uncompromising because, you know, that it was like, no, this is the story. <laughs> this is actually it. We yeah. can't change that part. Yeah. No, no, like it's too late. Like it's, yeah. <laughs> like it's now cast in stone. But yeah, I mean, and, and in terms of the alchemist, like there's always like young readers coming up right. too. And then with reading Sweetgrass, it was interesting. I was included on a Huff Post list of eight books, and that was uh, written by Indigenous writers. And yeah, Breeding Sweetgrass was on there. And like, that was a huge honor for me. I was like, whoa, like, I'm on the list of Breeding Sweetgrass. Like, things are looking up. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I guess that's what I'm saying. There are always so, and, and a book like that, a book like yours may from the outset feel like, oh, that's, that's hard. Or I, you know, again, as an agent, I've gotten that feedback from publishers. This isn't really selling this kind of genre, whatever. And I found whether it's building a thick skin on behalf of authors, I think if you believe in the story, and you work on your craft, right? This isn't your first novel. So you were working on it. And it's about finding that magical place where you're super passionate about what you're writing. And it's now translating in the way that it's received by the readers, holding your ground, standing your ground and staying the course because perseverance is what wins and finding the truth of it that like braiding sweet grass. I mean, we could choose like tons. There are lots of quote unquote exceptions to what is acceptable or what people want rule because there are so many people. <laughs> there are <laughs> readers for it. They do want it. It's about finding those readers. And on the publishing path, even if people go self-publishing, the onus is then on the author. And that can be really hard because you can be walking into it going, I don't know. I mean, you said you've got a publicist. And so they're helping you during this time of, you know, going harder, right? When a book is released, going harder on getting the, the word out. But it's really about a longer race and the thing that needs to remain constant. And this is where actually I do, this is where I go a little woo-woo, but writers do need spiritual support, whatever that means, whatever that means to them, wherever they get it. Or a pastor. Right. But going back and getting back, yeah, getting back to center. When we spend so much of our time focused externally, then our own truth starts to waver a little without us knowing. It's not like we're doing it purposely, but you have to bring it back to center and say things like, why did I write this? Why did I write this this way? What was the point? How do I stay with my integrity and stay focused on, I've got an author who always talks about keep the faith. So she'll say KTF, you keep going, 
If you have that deeply held belief, and if this is a reflection of the legacy you want to leave, keep going. You don't give up after six months or a year. And like you said, build into publishing if we abide their quote unquote rules of like, don't let anyone else read it for a long time. That drives me crazy on behalf of authors. Like I, I mean, from the publisher's perspective, I get it, but here's the truth. Chances are so great that they're going to ultimately say no, no. <laughs> that I, that's hard. In fact, that's the worst. When, when I'm working, the if, they, if they're going to say yes, they're going to call you. <laughs> that's what, that's what my experience is. They don't just like give you this wishy-washy, like, let me hold on to this for a few months and think about it like if they're as passionate about it as you are they're calling you like they're calling yeah. you on your phone like they're not yes. just like and so that's why they're trying to I get it because what they're saying is if I put my effort in I don't want you to have sold it somewhere else just depends on what side of the table you're sitting on I'm naturally sitting on the side of the table that's like I just want what's best for my author so I mean <laughs> you do what you got to do but we're going to do what we got to do and we want this story out there so yeah it's a balance it's a fine balance but I'm super excited that people can get out there and read something that's changing I I've seen a lot of stories like this, not stories like yours, but stories about finding ways to raise and and share the voices that were not heard and show that there were many truths, just like there are many truths, and we can't take for granted what we learned. Here's a truth, and I'm of a certain age, where what they taught at school when I was younger is no longer the way they teach it. My daughter has like things within math, right? It's not, it's not overly contentious, but she's like, here's my math work and blah, blah. I don't even do it the way she does it. I was taught a different way. It doesn't mean my way was wrong. It may have been too long, but there are things now she'll say, uh, we use this theory. And I'm like, I live. That's not even English now for me. I don't understand what you're saying. I did not learn that. I didn't know that was a way of looking at the world. And so. It's really important to see that just like science is living, we know things now that we didn't think were true back then. History is the same. It was real people living it. And what has been shared is this little tiny strip. And what yeah. you're doing and your book is doing is sharing some of those other things that were never seen. They're no less true because they happen, they literally happened, but now they're getting shared. And so people may have a better idea. And to your point, just way back at the beginning, if we don't look at these things, the, you know, the, the misinformation or just the incomplete picture is how we're taking steps forward. We need a more complete picture. So we change the steps we take. Yeah. Definitely. And I think it's like unifying as well. Like, like, mm. like novels, like they're just so huge. Like you, you join this sort of like collective energy, right? When you read something like Hemingway, or, you know, mm. these little the snapshot of what, you know, the, the Spanish Civil War was like, or World War Two, like, and you end up gaining more like compassion and empathy yes. as human, right? It kind of yes. be to these experiences that you would otherwise not be exposed to. I and so I think like when I was trying to get this published, it's like the, the novel I wrote is a little bit of a tearjerker and that seemed to mm. sort of rub people the wrong way as well. But I was like, well, it's sort of tearjerking what happened to these people. <laughs> it's like, why would that rub you the wrong way? I don't get it. <laughs> I like to be moved in what I read, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, which is really still nonfiction, but just told as far as I'm concerned in an accessible way, right? Whatever your theme. For sure. And some of my favorite, you know, 
stories are tearjerkers, like going back yeah. to like your Hemingway or Fitzgerald, like, you know, or Virginia Woolf even like, yes. you know, it's, you know, just total, total tragedies you sometimes have to experience to gain that sort of world view of compassion. Mm, mm. I think that's it. If we, if we, and, and I could chat to you for ages, but we won't make everyone listen to it. <laughs> Not but fiction, yeah. <laughs> no, I hope, I hope they wouldn't, but fiction is the, is the doorway for a lot of truth, right? Because like you said, and I was thinking of this with my kids and reading as well. I think that reading is a pathway to empathy and as you said, compassion, because we're reading through the eyes of people who have different experiences than us, that's a direct pathway. So the more we can get people reading, for example, if I went to say one of my sons who really loves modern history, I want him to read things within that genre. That's his natural interest, but do it in a way potentially with fiction that's going to share things, not just in a, it's cold, hard facts and dates and whatever. And that was never my jam. But if you give me story, I'm there and then I can remember the dates. So I'm sort of the opposite. If I'm not moved, I won't remember. But if I'm moved and I see it through personal story, or personal stories, personal perspectives. I can, and you've got these multiple perspectives and some of them are directly, uh, it's, I can't even say that it's not directly combative because it's nuanced and it, they're not clear lines of right, wrong. It's like, oh, everybody was in a really challenging place. There's not just two sides. That's just literally not how it worked. But by doing that, you open up readers to having that empathy for both perceived sides, right? So they yeah, can the, see this. The Americans were like, whoa, you wrote from Custer's perspective? Yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what now? Yeah. I'm like, I can be a white man if I want to be. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you tell me I can't. Well, look, we've got, we've got historical uh, sort of experience of seeing white men write from a, a female perspective that they don't have. So we should Remember, be able to do the yeah, other. Memoirs of a Geisha, like that novel is extraordinary. And then to find out, you know, it's a white American man author, like to me, my mind just like blew up. I was like, that is amazing. <laughs> yeah, like he did it <laughs> successfully. Yeah. 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 That's good. Well, look, thank you so much for coming on to chat today, Angie. I absolutely hope everyone goes out there and gets this book, whether you are naturally interested in history, or you just like to see something that introduces things and delivers them in a way that you weren't expecting with heart and lots of conflict, but it's not all external conflict. You know, the conflict is internal as well. And that transformation that these different characters take is really compelling. I mean, what if fantastic read. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Writers Talking. Join us next time for more writers in conversation as we delve into the writer's process, their passions, and a little bit about their books. Don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast player and follow us on Instagram at writers underscore talking underscore podcast.